Just to let you know, we mentioned the current coronavirus, uh, COVID-19 situation a few times. It's never mentioned indirectly uh, and it's uh, never gone into any great detail, but just to make people aware that it is in there if anyone wants to consider this to be a trigger warning. With that, on with the show. Welcome to the Happen Happen Podcast, episode 82, a podcast for IT professionals. Hi, I'm Al. I'm John. I'm Jerry. And I'm Stu. In this episode, we have a great catch-up. We also welcome Stu to our regular lineup. Our catch-up includes us talking about what we've been doing at work. We talk a bit about CICD and Ansible. And we also talk about networking and working from home. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. So yeah, we've got Stu back on again. So welcome again, Stu. Thank you. So what have we been up to? Well, I'll start off. I've started my DevOps job, which is going really well, actually. I'm really enjoying it. Um, it's definitely different from what I'm working in my past life as kind of a working in infrastructure where I was just working on one project and doing like getting booked out for two weeks to do things and then this going back getting booked out for the minimum as one or half a day but we are doing as i guess a good way we asked you three guys is we do things in sprints um which is a really interesting kind of thing so um we have a stand-up meeting every morning which is quite good and we just discuss what we do we did the day before and what we're planning to do t- today really so um it's quite a good little thing i'm working for the um, they are currently half on-prem and half in Azure. Um, half of their stack, they're moving to like their applications as a service, but they've still got a number of applications which still need to be um, have to be on a physical, or actually on a VM, on a Windows platform. So uh, one of my tasks is, first task is, is to kind of come up with a way of templating and deploying their VMs because at the moment they're just literally just hand-cranking um, VMs and then configuring them and I mean I've had an issue this week where we've got three machines and one machine is not working correctly because it's not configured as the other two machines so um, I'm in the process of um, looking at different ways we can um, do configuration management on that so I want to look at um, either Puppet to, to oh, sorry Ansible even to do that or um, PowerShell DSC and then even is it is it the Ansible? What's the uh, the open source version of their tower product? Is it ASX or something? AWX. AWX. So that's my other thing I want to have a look at. Yeah, because I've got a CIDI pipeline, which is um, uh, which is okay, but it's been really open engineered because it's engineered by um, developers. So when we mortals come along to just do some ARM templates, deploy some VMs, it's really difficult. So we're looking at using Azure DevOps to actually deploy the VMs and then they can have their own CIDI pipeline to um, basically publish their own apps kind of thing. So, yeah, it's, I've got lots to learn as well. And then, I mean, um, yeah, they use Slack loads. And I've never ever used Slack before. We've used Teams and, um, yeah, yeah, Slack seems all right. Um it's very noisy, <laughs> yeah. 
but it, it, yeah, we were going got our own little DevOps channel and stuff. So it's like seven of us in a, in a team. So yeah, it was quite good. I mean, the other thing of downside, well, obviously, you've got they 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 haven't they don't use uh, Exchange. They have they use the G Suite because the company mm-hmm. I own, it works for is owned by an American company, and it's just really hard getting my head around. After you like don't know how many twenty years of using Outlook for my email. I've now got to use Gmail to do my day in day out emails, but um, I do like the idea when you it does actually with does the auto typing. You start typing and it starts suggesting what you want to type. That's quite handy. Mm. Um, Tab completion for emails. Yeah, it's Great. really good. <laughs> but saying that, I mean, I used to live and breed emails, but this company is all in the Slack. Nothing is an email. I mean, I don't hardly get any emails. Everything is done via Slack. All the IT alerts are done by Slack. All the or tickets are open by Slack. So, yeah, it's good. I mean, the whole, the, the day with the whole thing about the sprints where we, I mean, I've only been there, I haven't been there two weeks, but half my first week was there. We did the, they did a sprint review meeting when after two weeks sprint, um, we just have a good chat about what's gone wrong and what's been good about happening in the last week. So, yeah, that's kind of where I'm coming from. Hopefully I can kind of expand on all that as as in the coming weeks really so there's a couple of bits that i've pulled out from from what you were saying there slack yes i've used slack for some time not for work stuff per se um because like you were saying before um we were we're very much a microsoft house so it's it's teams and before that was skype for business in our place Uh, but i have used slack the biggest thing that i have found with slack is making sure you set your notifications for out of office uh, for for being unavailable and stuff because it will pester the living what's it's out of you on your phone if you if you let it. But the other thing that you mentioned was about going to um, Gmail G Suite for your um, email. One of the hosts on the Bad Voltage podcast, Stuart Language, was talking about how he he wanted to do be more productive with his email um, in Gmail and actually posted in their their Slack because they've got a Slack channel like we have our Telegram channel. He posted in there about how there's, a, there's basically there's a post on there about how to how to not drown in email and how to use Gmail more efficiently. Uh, so I'm going to stick that into the show notes, but that's a that's a really useful thing. It's from about three or four years ago, but it's about using uh, multiple inboxes and tagging efficiently. And I've been doing that for about probably seven or eight years, doing pretty much exactly what it says in the in the in the article. Yeah, because that's the main thing that confuses me is that there's no folders, and I work my previous job i was just i use folders for everything so i use my inbox as in what i'm doing in my day-to-day job so if someone emails me and i'm doing something i leave it in my inbox and as soon as i get dealt with i obviously then move it to the folder which i've done with obviously then within gmail you have tags don't you so you can do something like tags uh, like folders in gmail so yes yeah, so literally in that case i just would tag something and archive it which does effectively the same thing. But what I tend to do more is I will create filters for my emails so that when they come in, they're automatically tagged. So that when you archive it, you're not having to tag it and archive it. It's just tagged automatically. But the other thing that I tend to do, because a lot of the email that I get, so I use G Suite for my personal email. And a lot of the stuff that goes into my Gmail comes from mailing lists. So I have got 
whole slew of filters and rules for basically anything that I'm that, that's coming as a what our class as a broadcast mail, so a, a mailing list or something like that. That goes that gets tagged as broadcast and gets automatically archived. So it doesn't it doesn't ever appear in my inbox. So the only stuff that's in my inbox is stuff that I haven't already filtered somewhere else. Yeah, I mean, for personal email, I I use the priority inbox thing. So I I only that's really good at filtering out only the emails that are actually addressed to you, are, are pretty much the only ones you see. Uh, and yeah, I've I've also set up um, filtering for when emails come in. That, that's, that's really handy. Yeah, I've I've got a similar thing going off in mind. I use Proton Mail, so it's slightly different. But yeah, for the most part, it's tagging and archiving sorts all mine out, along with I think I've probably got about three or four hundred different um, emails that are filtered, Ma- mainly mailing lists again. Yeah, but yeah, just stuff like that. I mean, uh, so, uh, talking about Slack at work as well, I often find I, 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 with me it's one or the other, and it tends to be that m- most people communicate using Slack, and I email kind of gets left alone for me generally at at work uh, or in a work environment which can be bad sometimes because I sometimes miss calendar invites and things like that because well if they're not um, hooked up to slack another thing to like some places I've worked are on this the slack free plan which means it only keeps 10,000 messages Mm. Um, so you lose uh, so you should make notes basically in case the the message you're looking for disappears from falls off the end yeah i, I went through a similar thing about uh, four years ago now al so yeah i i, I know what you're going through <laughs> yeah we're, we're kind of going the other way we um we have slack but we're now moving to teams um because most of the business uses teams but all of the technical side use it use slack because we preferred it and even got people to pay for it um earlier this year unfortunately now with everything that's going on in the world we're cutting costs and one of the first things to go was slack so we're moving to teams and it's not an easy transition when you've gotten used to slack being the only way because um, mm-hmm. we we didn't really use email at all. It's the first place I've used where email has not been a priority. But yeah, now I, I can go days without looking at my inbox and uh, it, it not be of any consequence. But yeah, it seems like we're moving back the other way in, in many respects. Last place, actually, we just use Teams for video chat and that, that kind of thing, a, a conference call type thing, and yeah, Slack for um, day-to-day communication. The one good thing about Teams is that, um, and it's something that, has bothered me with uh, all of the other video chat systems that I've used is that Teams actually has a thing where you can blur the background of, of your environment. So if you're like from, for me, cause I work at home, you know, and particularly at the moment when uh, I've got my whole family is in the house at the same time as me all the time at the moment, you can turn on the blur thing so that if somebody comes in through the door behind me, it doesn't turn into that thing from the BBC where the guy was being interviewed and his kid came in. Yeah. I've actually seen that on, uh, you know, uh, people having interviews and so on, uh, having the, the blurring in the background. Uh, mm. So maybe they're using Teams. Yeah, that this week uh, my kids have been on the um, calls quite a few times. Uh, I think a few of them have nearly joined the stand-up meeting themselves. Uh, you know. <laughs> 
about if you've seen this week teams actually has the ability to also add not quite custom backgrounds but they've got a few images of their own and then i think at some point they're going to allow custom backgrounds but most of my stand-up miss this most of my stand-up meetings this week they've had minecraft in the background on it so you know everyone's um everyone's been enjoying that the folder that you put the images into has been publicized now. Ah. So you can you can put your own images into there and select that, and that is then added to your video. The one thing that I will say, though, is that if you do that, particularly where I live, so where my camera points at, I've got an archway that's just behind me, and every time I move my head, because it's, cause it's shadowy in there, uh, and I've got dark hair, um, as soon as I move my head, it picks up the archway, and it looks like apparently it looks like I've got a fat head, which I'm not. Ex- well, I'm, I'm not exceptionally happy about, but you know these things happen. <laughs> yeah, I bet not tell people I work with about the ability to change your own backgrounds because I think we're going to lose days on calls doing that. Could be worse. You could be on WhatsApp and uh, have have everyone changing their sort of hair color to sort of pink and purple, and or you know. <laughs> Anyway, I think that was all I was going to mention about other stuff that Al mentioned. Oh, there was one other thing before we start getting angry letters. Al, I don't, unless it's a particular reference in where you are, but it's not C-I-D-I, it's C-I-C-D. Okay, it's just me, mine, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, uh, so C-I-C-D stands for Continuous Integration, and then either Continuous Deployment or Continuous Delivery. Okay. So sometimes you'll see C-I-C-D-C-D, because the deployment and delivery are two different things because what you can do is have your CI CD pipeline, like building artifacts and stuff like that, uh, particularly around um, compiled executables like .NET applications or um, Java applications. You can have a CI CD pipeline that builds an executable that you're then your deployment system will then pull that executable from the CI CD pipeline. It's basically a way of, of automating. I mean, it's in these environments, it's, it's used quite a lot to just automate pretty much anything. So r- running scripts, giving someone the ability to just click a button to run a script, for instance, rather than having to run it from their laptop or or that, that kind of thing. You mentioned as well about AWX. I've mentioned it before on the podcast. It's worth mentioning again. If you are looking at AWX, I've got um, Terraform Playbooks, for delivering into Azure and AWS, an AWX stack. So a GitLab server and an AWX server with some scripts to configure users and secrets and stuff like that into it, which I'll stick that into the show notes as well and send that over to you a bit later on as well. Because it's quite, it's it's, it's probably the, once you get your head around how how AWX works, it's really straightforward. I think I might've done a, uh, a video about how to use AWX, but um, the the link's quite a useful one to go through. Cool. Thank you. So what have other people been up to? I'll, I'll take that one then. Um, so I have been, as I said, I've been working from home, mostly doing documentation for stuff, which is uh, a little bit annoying because it's not really where my strong suit is. I don't mind writing up, you know, how-to guides and stuff like that, but actually writing like formal proposal documents and stuff, that's that's not my strong suit. I really need to work on that. Outside of work, um, I have gone back to doing some some ridiculously bad PHP coding. So one of the things that we've started doing a lot more now that we're in lockdown is playing a lot, a lot more card games. And uh, one of the card games that my 
wife's family plays a lot of is a game called Newmarket, which is just a 52-card standard deck of cards. It's not like collectible card games like Magic or anything like that, but it's just a it's a card game where you're looking to try and make runs of cards and stuff like that. And we really want to play that with my in-laws because it's a game that they've played for years and years and years. And I cannot find anywhere online to play card games. So I'm starting to try and figure out how to write PHP to deal to deal a deck of 52 cards and have that as an API so you can actually play games so, so that we can have a Zoom call or something similar with my in-laws and actually have a game of cards where we've got a single canonical place for who's got what cards. Hmm. And that's a an online service somewhere. So I'll stick the I'll stick the link to that project somewhere so that somebody else can sort of point and laugh at my PHP because one of the downsides. So I I used to do a lot of PHP and Al and Jerry will know that uh, I used to write the uh, scheduling software for things like OGCamp, which reminds me for those that were hoping to go to OGCamp, uh, OGCamp has actually been cancelled for this year because of lockdown. But I know we talk about that a lot, but. So uh, they had planned to be running in October-ish, but that's all fallen by the way. So anyway, so I used to write the talk scheduling software for that in PHP. And just after I started writing that, my son was born. So I kind of stopped having time to do much coding. And when I've asked other people to look at the coding, they've asked why I've not used a conventional framework. And the reason why I've not used a conventional framework is because I can't get my head around them at all. (laughs) So... uh, (laughs) I really should be using something like Laravel or something like that, uh, or Code Igniter for PHP. Laravel's really good after you recommended it for me. That's really good. Yeah, it's, so I, I need to figure out how to do Laravel because it is the one that everyone tells you, tells me to use. But the problem that I've always found with Laravel is that it assumes you know a lot about how Laravel works. And all the all the tutorials that I've gone through kind of are, we're going to do this thing that starts kind of halfway through where my mind works, or they say we're going to learn about how to write PHP, which is right at the, I know how to write PHP. <laughs> it's not necessarily great PHP, but I know how to write PHP. So there's no kind of middle ground. There's no middle ground, unfortunately. It's a bit frustrating. But so, so as a result, this, the code that I've written for this new market game and that I wrote for Campfire Manager and also is a, was inspired by what I wrote for CC Hits. They're all kind of based on this framework that I've written for myself, which is not a particularly great framework, but it does work. Just not as efficiently as I want it to. Have you heard of playingcards.io? I hadn't. That would probably be easier. <laughs> I might have a look at that. You, could, you have a look at you Basically, you make your own... It's like you can play predefined games, but there's an option to create your own, your own stack. So... We're using it to play cards against Manti on, um, you, yeah, to have a look at playingcards.io. Ah, right. For playing cards against humanity, I can strongly recommend um, a thing called House Party. Yeah. And House Party is like a, a video chat thing for, I think it's up to eight people. Uh, and one of the games that you can play inside that, they call it Chips and Guac or something like that. But it's effectively Cards Against Humanity. Mm-hmm. And that's like, as well, going back to your way of how you write code, we're going to have a session next week at work about how to write um, to write PowerShell scripts. Because I just basically, just when I write a PowerShell script, I just like steal other people's PowerShell scripts. But then also I'm thinking, is there better ways of doing it with 
so we're going to come up with like a work a, a framework between the, all of us at work to kind of work out what the best way of doing it is really i'm guessing you'll be using git as well al yes uh, is that your first sort of encounter with that yeah using it in a workplace so the whole we yeah we use i can't think what it's called but we use the whole stack of their their pipelining tool and their um git solutions all in one so okay so yeah so i've had to use git for the first time properly so vs code i've configured with a nice couple of little add-ons um i'll put them in the show notes one so that you can like you can branch and stuff by clicking on stuff in the bra- in, in vs code and another one which has got an arm template validator as well so yeah it's interesting i actually actually using using git in using git for my job is quite good yeah if you're using git are you using anything to do signed commits or is that a phrase that you've not really come across before? No, we just basically, if you want to say I like get a ticket in or something, we basically just branch the code which someone has written. We then modify the code and then we then do a pull request to merge it back in. And then that goes to one of the developers and they can then say, oh, yes, or no, we don't want to, we want to, we will merge it. So, no, I haven't come across that. So the reason why I ask that is because one of the tools that I've been using quite a lot, uh, probably in the last three or four months, is a tool called crypt.co. That's K-R-Y-P-T dot C-O, which is by default, uh, it's a U2F provider for your browser. So like a YubiKey or something like that, uh, it's a browser extension that... um, recognizes when a u2f request is being raised so for example uh, so you'd use a yubikey so for example when you're logging into google apps or if you're logging into dropbox or something like that but instead of it being a physical dongle that you plug into your usb port or your an nfc thing that you tap on your phone or your laptop whenever it is you need to uh, authenticate it's a phone app so you pair your phone to your browser so that's fine and so whenever you go to a um, google apps or dropbox or something like that to log in uh, instead of you having to tap the button on your usb dongle uh, instead you get a notification pop up on your phone and you then accept a request there for this one instance all requests to that host in the next three hours or um, all requests for the next Anyway, there's, there's, there's a variety of options you can get. So that was quite cool for me because I like I like having lots of different authentication systems. Um, but um, the thing that was a kind of killer feature for me is actually if you go into the settings of the phone app, there's a bit where it says developer mode. Uh, so you go into developer mode and then on your laptop in your SSH session, you run uh, a, a simple curl pipe bash command which obviously you can do in other ways but a curl pipe bash command to install um, a command line utility called kr and kr uh, effectively is just a wrapper from a command line tool to this crypt tool so it by default sets itself up as an ssh key uh, but it will also do signed commits so you can make it so that every time you try and do a git commit uh, it'll ask you for a, it'll ask you to confirm that it's you 
So that means that um, if you work in an environment where people don't trust or may not trust that a developer's laptop hasn't been compromised, you can do this. Um, you can use this signed commits thing to make sure that you're the you're the person that's actually signed that commit. Um, but the other thing that you can do as well is then when you do a git push, it will then also pop up another thing saying, are you sure you want to push to GitHub? Um, so I, I really like that. Um, it's, it was independently written maybe four or five years ago, um, and was then bought by Akamai last year. So Akamai actually have it as part of their tools that they're supporting and supporting the ongoing development of. Um, but it's, it's, it's quite a nice system, I think, from the looks of things. I think I might have to take a look at that. I've been looking at stuff like YubiKeys for a long time, but actually, yeah, that might dispense with the need for it. So the one the one site that I've tried to do U2F with that doesn't work with Crypt is Twitter. And I don't know what it is. I don't know whether it's because I've got... So I use Firefox containers as well. So I don't know whether it's getting confused about the Firefox containers because it's when Twitter does U2F stuff, it opens another window up and there's all sorts of weird and wonderful stuff that it does. I don't know whether that's confusing crypt or what it is, but yeah, Twitter's the one app that if I want to do U2F on, I have to use my YubiKey that I've got here. But everything else is all is all done on crypt for me now. Nice, I'm definitely going to have a look at that one. So that's that's all my stuff. How about, how about uh, let's go to Stu. Stu, what have you been up to? In work... Um, I've been doing a lot with, well, I've been kind of going back to my roots a little bit in the past few months. I've been doing a lot of um, networking because companies expanding, we're expanding to different regions and um, because of it, everyone's busy and it kind of fell back to me to um, go and do some more uh, networking again. So I've been doing all sorts with things like rather than using um, AWS's networking features, we're trying to bypass them for the... Um, for reliability in terms of being able to fail over to different places because we've found that for whatever reason, um, our connectivity into the region we're going to is not keep, keeps dropping every so often. And it might not be the fault of um, AWS in this instance. It might be something else, but we're going to move to um, doing it all on essentially Linux routers. And um, then at that way, we can actually look at what's going on, actually control the traffic and stick in some redundant paths elsewhere. So that's been interesting. But then in the past week, I'm finally now moving um, all the Prometheus stuff that I talked about in the last time I was on into a production environment. So we're now starting to do it full bore as one of our uh, monitoring platforms and hopefully the monitoring platform soon. So I'm quite enjoying that, actually getting to put it into practice properly rather than just playing with it like I was before. In terms of personal stuff, I've, again, been going back to my roots again, doing a lot with um, networking in Ansible. So back when I was doing networking every day, it was mostly CLI-driven and the odd Python scripts that I put together. Um, but recently, I've been putting some posts together on using Ansible to um, manage network devices. And rather than trying to do the odd little bit here and there, I decided what, what I was going to do was do a strict set of... Um, can set up a BGP peering session, can set up OSPF, can set up um, interfaces, all this kind of thing, and also set up, you know, things like firewall rules, all that kind of thing, but trying to do the same thing across multiple platforms so you can get a comparison between the platforms. And so far, it's been 
bit hit and miss in terms of some vendors have a lot more modules available. So, for example, Cisco has most um, most modules available for things like Cisco iOS and especially um, uh, Cisco Nexus. You can pretty much do everything using Ansible modules, whereas some of the other vendors, um, you can do things like setting up um, just interfaces and IPs, but anything beyond that, you basically need to write the config um and just apply it as a template and then i started doing one with mictic this week and uh yeah you can't even use templates for that one so you're basically running raw commands and it's it's not the most idempotent um platform to begin with uh mictic so tr- i've been dealing with all sorts of weird and wonderful ways to make it delete um config when it should rather than just deleting everything and leaving the router not actually working at all so it's been interesting, but yeah, it's um, so far pr- showing there's a lot of differences in terms of where the networking um, stack is with Ansible. But yeah, so far, I'm really enjoying it, actually. And I kind of wish these tools were at, at least in um, the maturity they are. I wish they were there about five, five or so years ago, because um, yeah, some of the things I've had to do in the past in uh, using Python would be a lot easier using this, put it that way. Well, I've got to say, I've been really, really impressed with the, the series of blog posts, uh, so much so that I've been recommending it to a load of people at work to to look at. And actually, even just, I think it was only two or three days ago, I actually sent the link to one of our, one of our service delivery managers because they've, uh, they've got 500 hosts that they needed to go away and touch. And, uh, and they were all Cisco boxes. And they wanted to know if there was any way of applying sort of 15 lines of config to them. And we're like, oh, well, actually, funny you mentioned that. There's a blog post just here that does exactly what you were after. So uh, oh, thank you for that. Nice. Really, really good set. Really, really good set posts. Thank you very much. Um, I'm just finishing up um, the one on Arista's EOS, and then I'm just doing all the tech work on the Mictic one. So there'll be a couple more coming on that one. But yeah, I think I've unfortunately set myself up for about a year of blog posts at this rate. So yeah, it's going to take me a while. Of course, the other thing as well that you're then going to have to do after you've done your year's worth of blog posts is uh, is go back and revise it every uh, every every six months, every time a new release of Ansible. Comes yeah, out. exactly. There's already things I I know are coming in um, Ansible two ten that um, aren't in two nine, which have made things like some of the CentOS um, things I've been doing because I've been, I've set up a root server with CentOS um, so that everything can peer to a central thing. And yeah, basically network manager right now on CentOS 8 cannot be controlled by Ansible, whereas in 2.10, that is the case. So actually, I'm probably going to have to rewrite that blog post in his time anyway, so we'll see. Well, the other thing as well to bear in mind with uh, Ansible 2.10 is that they're starting to move some of the modules out of core and into what they call collections. And I've particularly seen that with the FortiGate modules. No, not with the FortiGate modules, with the AWX modules. Because what they're trying to do is make it so that, and I particularly saw this with Fortinet, but I can see why they're doing this, which is that Fortinet come along and say, here's a load of modules that we want you to introduce into the next release of Ansible. And the next release of Ansible is going to be in like eight months time. So they can't, whereas if they're putting stuff into collections, collections are as part of Ansible Galaxy. And Ansible Galaxy is basically their way of loading new stuff into your um, your roles and your playbooks and stuff like that. So they're moving these modules out of core and into Ansible Galaxy so that now you can, if if Fortinet comes along and says, oh, we've just, we've just released modules for the 40, uh, 40 seam or whatever it is they've released Ansible modules for, they can drop those into a collection and then say, you just need to get this collection 
as part of your module rather than saying, oh, you need to use such and such a version of Ansible, which, you know, might be Devel or whatever. Yeah, no, it, it definitely makes more sense. It, it's almost like the whole um, Ubuntu thing with LTS and then snaps on top of it. So it's not waiting for the next release. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's in- intriguing. I'm definitely looking forward to that. I really need to follow what's going on with Ansible, considering how much I, I use it. Um, I usually come across these things when I uh, do an apt update and <laughs> something stops working. My co- my old code stops working or something. I, I just wanted to follow up on something you were saying about um, networking. Are you are you building these uh, as EC2 instances, for, for instance, like sort of like virtual appliances? Um, they are currently VMs on a KVM box I've got at home for the most part. Um, however, some of the processes have been used and have actually been applied to a few things at work, which, uh, have been placed into AWS. So I'm, I'm trying to make them as environment agnostic as possible. Um, and yeah, but yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty much get hold of, um, a vendor's, um, lab VM. So in the case of Cisco, um, there's VIOS and stuff like that. So it's basically virtualized um, routers. A few others give them away for free. Other ones are behind a paywall um, or you have to have a support license with them. But yeah, for the most part, it's just spinning up a VM and hope that it doesn't take all the RAM in left in my box and then start configuring it from there. Yeah, no, I was thinking more in a cloud in a cloud environment because you were talking about using it in an AWS environment, I think. Oh yeah, yeah, that's um the the routers that we use in there are actually um Linux boxes running um Bird. So it's um Bird can run BGP, OSPF, all sorts of routing demons and um it was chosen by someone else at um our current place, but I've 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 used it quite a lot before. So yeah, that is currently that's been built with salt because that's what we use um where I work rather than Ansible. But a lot of my testing I did with Ansible because I was more familiar with um how I was going to use it at the time. And then just translated it across to salt afterwards. So, All right. but yeah, yeah. I mean, I've seen, I've, I've not seen that very often in AWS environments I've worked in. But um, it seems in Azure, it's quite common practice to use uh, Palo Alto firewalls, for instance, and um, F5 load balances. That that's what the uh, the pattern was in the last place I was working. Uh, but it seems quite common. Yeah, there's an element of, um, because we're not just AWS only, we also have a lot of, on, well, um, kind of on-prem stuff. So in our main regions, we have full-on data centers, whereas in the regions we're expanding to, there's networking kits so we can then connect to um, transit providers and stuff like that. But for the most part, it's just a, another networking route. But because AWS says networking is under the assumption that you'll only ever use that, um, you don't have much in the way of redundancy if something happens with the connectivity from AWS um, in one region to another. So, yeah, that's basically what we're trying to work around at the moment. Okay. Something else that might might be worth taking a look at is have you had a look at Nebula and any of the stuff like that, the overlay networks? Uh, not yet, no. Because that effectively flattens your entire network. Yeah. Uh, so it gives you a slash whatever you decide your subnet's going to be, but it basically applies that across the whole globe. So all of your nodes then join, uh, use um, lighthouses as a kind of a way of signaling which other nodes are on the network. It's built by Slack, and it was you. It basically they run their entire infrastructure using Nebula as all their backend inter inter peer communications. Yeah. 
very interesting. It's very lightweight, but it does require your nodes to all be reconfigured every time they're changed. Which obviously in an idempotent build world, that's fine. The other good thing about it is it does handle NAT and double NAT and stuff like that quite well. So all of their, all of their support staff all use Nebula as well to get into their environments. They just go, go straight in from their home network or whatever, straight out to all their machines without having to build VPN tunnels and stuff like that. Cause they already exist there. Yeah, I was going to say, it all sounds like the perfect home workers VPN at that point, to say the least. So. There was a, there's the guy on TechSnap was saying something about, I'm not sure if it was Nebula or if it was the other one that you talked about, John. Zero comp. Yeah. Uh, zero, zero tier. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And he was talking about using it in, in on his homeland and then just, you know, you can take your laptop to a coffee shop or whatever when lockdown ends, obviously. <laughs> and, uh, and you, you, there's, there's no configuration. You, you're, you're still on your home network. Uh, it, you know, connecting to where to it from wherever so effectively the way that it works and i don't want to go into it a lot into a lot of detail i did i I wrote i wrote a load of documentation for the project uh, but it's still sitting in a pull request waiting for them to sort of bring it into the tree but effectively what happens is it uses udp which doesn't require a full tcp handshake to happen Uh, and also you can spoof the source of a packet so what will sometimes happen is if you're trying to, if you're coming from say behind two or three layers of NAT, say for example, you, you are using um, a hotel Wi-Fi system or something like that. And then, then they're going to a carrier grade NAT and then they're going through a proxy somewhere else. What happens with Nebula is it does a UDP connection out. Uh, and if the node that you're trying to connect to is also behind a complex NAT environment as well, the light you connect to the lighthouse and the lighthouse says um, that node there is already talking to me over this UDP port. So if you initiate a UDP connection to that IP address with this UDP port as the source, then what it'll do is it'll actually would say with this IP and UDP port as the source, um, that'll go through their firewall and will go straight through to their node. So it basically just rewrites the entire packet as it's going out so that so that it the other end doesn't have to try and figure out which connection it is it's going to. It's just going straight to the nebula process that's on that other box. So you only ever actually have to expose the nebula services on the lighthouses. And if you already have, you know, two or three um, points of presence around the world, you just say, well, those two or three nodes that already got, you know, HTTP, HTTPS exposed will just expose Nebula on there as well. And that just handles, effectively, that's like your DNS servers. And it, and it also can tell other nodes about, you know, what IP and port they, that, that lighthouse is seeing that comms coming from. So it's, it's, it's a really nicely implemented VPN product. It's well worth a look at. And we talked about it in a previous episode. Unfortunately, I don't have the episode number to hand, but um, maybe we can, we can, uh, by the magic of podcasting, add that in somehow. Mm. <laughs> so, Jerry, what have you been up to? Uh, well, I've, uh, yeah, been talking of work. I've, that's been a bit, uh, kind of all over the place at the, at the moment. I, I finished my, the last contract I was working. Um, at the end of March, um, so sort of just coinciding with the the start of the lockdown, 
and you know i would have uh, been in normal times i probably would have been starting another contract uh, but there was there was a bit of a a delay for, for sort of obvious reasons while companies get their themselves sorted out and so as of today i've, I've uh, just completed a third interview and i've got a new job which is a, a permanent role which is the first one for about four years um so um i can't report much on it now because uh, i haven't started it but um maybe maybe next episode um but in the meantime uh, i've been doing some freelance work so i've been working for another client uh, that i previously worked worked for doing some stuff around d- d- disaster recovery um so basically investigating how how that would work in their case and then documenting it and and providing a document to for a, for a, just a random sysadmin to to follow to to bring up their infrastructure so turns out they've got most of their vms backed up using a product called vprotect so so really the document goes into how what's the, the sort of minimum the minimum thing that you need in order to get going and bring bring those vms back from from where they're where they're stored and so as it turns out um all you need really are the credentials that they're using uh, which are, are stored in um they actually use keypass and a utility called pass which i think we've talked about in the past and uh, vprotect can get itself up and running as long as you have the database which they've got safely backed up to a, a cloud somewhere and then from there uh, it's bringing up their virtualization system and restoring the vms back back onto there so that gets their core services up and running and allows them to work uh, and from there they they can sort of build out their their environment as they need to so it's quite an interesting exercise going from zero to some services and, and a working company so that's been filling most of my time um another client i've been they've got some linos so this this a php developer actually uh john has has built uh, quite a big infrastructure for this product that he's that he's built using Linode, uh, which is another cloud provider, kind of smaller cloud provider. But he's done it from the point of view of a developer, so he's got me on board to bring in some config management, sort of make make the infrastructure a bit easier to to or, or actually have have config management there. We, I mean, we've discussed the advantages of it many many times on on the show. Uh, so my, my task there is really looking at what he's got and looking at how to automate, um, bring that up. And I've, I've been using, uh, Ansible to do that. And I've been looking at Packer, which, uh, I think we've talked about that in the past as well. So I'll, I'll basically be providing him with some images, um, which he can use to bring up various different types of server that he's got. And so, yeah, that's that's a kind of an interesting exercise going through what he's got, working out how to build an image um, in Packer, uh, and then delivering those images. So, yeah, that's that's been good. And uh, yeah, just some some smaller bits and bobs for other clients to kind of fill the time um, while I haven't been, uh, had had a nine to five job, which has been yeah interesting and also coinciding with everyone as as we mentioned the rest of my family being at home as well and uh demands <laughs> of, of, of all that 
so yeah, that's really been been what I've been up to for for the past couple of weeks, really. So you is it a permanent job you've gone back to now? I have, yeah, yeah. First one in about four years. So yeah, because when we first started doing the podcast, or when you joined us, you were going from being a permanent to, to a uh, contractor. Why? What's the decision to make you go back to being a permanent? This was the only job I applied for that actually got back to me. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the main the main thing. Yeah, but I mean, it's it's going to be interesting. I'll have pay, having paid holiday again will be will be interesting. I might actually go on holiday, <laughs> which I haven't done for a couple of years. Not not this year though, I think. No, no, yeah. Well, yeah, that's that's the thing. I was due to go to uh, Tenerife. Uh, I, I think I would have just been just getting back in the last couple of days. <laughs> we would have been Spain this time last at uh, this time. Yeah, uh, yeah, before this lot. So, oh well, that would have made recording this podcast really interesting. <laughs> I guess another six months or so won't make any difference, or is it going to be two years now? Uh, who knows? <laughs> don't, let, let's let's not let's not predict what we don't know. <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, that 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 was really it. Now um, the the contract market seems to have uh, become non-existent at the moment. So yeah, that that's why I, why I've gone permanent. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's been it's it's interesting because uh, I haven't been permanent for for a long time. So, I mean, it's effectively the same day to day, I think, but it's just you, you're not running your own company. And although I still will be keeping the company going, but it just won't be making as much money. Okay, cool. Well, good luck with that. Um, I've got something to bring up just before we get to the hour. Um, on the other podcast I listened to, the Mike Tech Show, there was someone emailed in on there about that they're from the UK and they have a Plusnet, which is the ISP I use. I think you use it as well, don't you? Mm-hmm. I do indeed. Yeah, me too, actually. I've used them for so many years now, when they back in the Force 9 days before they came Plus. And it was about someone who'd purchased some nest um folk fire alarms was only one on ip6 and he was asking if plusnet did ip6 which obviously they don't do ip6 correct um i was just wondering how he could come up quick because he's obviously got the he he's got the standard route what comes with plusnet and he was going can you change his route i'm going yes of course you can change it to any route you want to i'm currently got a bargle sitting on mine at the moment doing this as a PPOE device but he was asking how he could get IP6 but I think John would be able to answer that would he be able to just do something with is it Hurricane or something was it Hurricane Electric yeah Hurricane Electric so Hurricane Electric is an IPv6 provider I don't know whether you've come across these at all Stu Uh, yes yeah uh, we use them for our transit and I've used them a few places so far cool so I did uh, some experiments with IPv6 uh, last year, year before. Um, Again, we've got this in a previous podcast <laughs> Indeed. In, in more detail. So I absolutely have, I've done IPv6 stuff with them. In fact, I've got an Ansible playbook that will deploy it on a, something like a Raspberry Pi or on a virtual machine, an IPv6 router effectively to route to hurricane electric if you've got a router and i need to i need to get remember what the exact term for it is but it's basically doing i think what they call six in four so it basically encapsulates like with an with a ipv uh, with um uh, an ipsec vpn it encapsulates the ipv6 packet inside an ipv4 packet which it then sends to a remote gateway where it 
uh, unpacks it and then sends it out as an IPv6 packet. The frustrating thing about Plusnet is that they are owned by BT and BT has IPv6 capabilities. Yeah, if if you if you have one of their home broadband with like a home hub six, because I was at my parents' house about a week ago and I was going, hang on a minute, I've got an IP six address here. Yeah, so yeah, it's really it's really annoying. Yeah, so to to work around the fact that Plusnet doesn't have the IPv six, I have run IPv IPv six with Hurricane Electric. Um, I also did it with six back when six were still offering IPv six. Um, so that's S I X X. They were running an IPv6 gateway uh, to do the same thing as Hurricane, but in a different with a different protocol. The problem that I found was, and this is probably just uh, due to the fact that I have got uh, the world's worst Heath Robinson bundle of services stood up inside my house. I could not make this thing work in any sort of stable fashion, and so. If my router rebooted, my actual Plusnet DSL router rebooted, then the IPv6 connection would go down. It reestablished itself, but by that point, all the things in the house that were relying on the IPv6 connectivity would fail and would go down. Uh, the main one being uh, my Fire TV stick. So that one had significant uh, spousal disapproval. <laughs> Plus, if I needed to reboot the server that the VM was sitting on, or the Raspberry Pi when it was sitting on that, uh, for whatever reason, then it would do the same thing. It would take out all the IPv6 stuff. That's the whole um, happy eyeballs concept, isn't it? The whole, if IPv6 is available, go for that. If it's not, go for IPv4, which, you know, if you're running on something that's not quite as fast as your normal connection and also over a tunnel, you're not only going to have speed issues, but if that goes away, then there's going to be a lot disappear along with it. So, yeah. Yeah. I had a weird IPv6 thing. I'm just uh, by the way, it's episode 72, which came out just over a year ago. And 73, we talk about it as well. Because we all know. And the Nebula thing was episode 80, so yeah, yeah. You know, <laughs> we're doing good all round. Yeah, um, yeah. So I've got this uh, wireless printer, which is it, it's rubbish. I, I had to set it up. I set it up with IPv4 many many years ago, uh, and the I for various reasons the subnet the ipv4 subnet has changed on my network uh so it does it can't see it can't see it anymore but when i um there's a little linux utility which uh will find it on the network and it finds the ipv6 address um which is weird <laughs> so I, I think i might have to do some ipv6 investigation uh, uh here but uh, I'll, maybe maybe I'll keep that for a future show. Um, that's another th- uh, thing, you know. IT uh, tech support uh, for for the family is is always a struggle getting the printer working. But then printers are uh, expletive deleted. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I tend to find, particularly with printers, is that they typically have a very standard set of ports open. So. If you are looking for those printers on your network, you're just basically looking, I think it's port 9100, TCP 9100. Mm. So if you do an Nmap on your network for TCP 9100, pretty much the only box that will come back with that is a printer or something that's acting as a print server. So if you can find that server, 
that that device, that's your IPv4 address for that mm. that service. Yeah, yeah. Problem is the subnet that my entire network is on, and the reason for that is um, when I, I I got a Ubiquiti Edge Edge router, uh, and the thing that I followed to get it set up in the way I want had this weird weird subnet which was happened to be different to the printer, so. To do anything with the printer, I think I, I would need a Windows box with the printer software installed uh, on, on the same network as the printer. So uh, at, at the moment, we've got a USB cable. <laughs> 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 it works. It was it was quick. <laughs> it's quick to fix, but not a long long term solution. If you've got a home server, which I'm guessing you will do, mm. um, why not stick? a second interface on that into this network that's got your printer on it. True. And then run cups on that. I haven't got a server with two interfaces, but um, yeah, I you don't need you to. You can multi-home it, couldn't you? Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, I might try that. I mean, if you if your Ubiquiti box is running VLANs and your home server is attached to that network on VLANs, you tag both the VLANs on the interface on your Linux box uh, and then tell the router to send that as a trunk interface rather than a, an access interface. I'm using, I'm mixing terminology from all sorts <laughs> of different things. Yeah, I should really let the, the network engineer talk about this stuff. But, <laughs> but yeah, that's what I would do anyway. Okay. Yeah, I, I've got a lot of VLANs going off at home. I decided it. Um, I, I wasn't just happy with the ISP router anymore quite recently and now I, f- I think if um, I disappeared for whatever reason there would no one to be able to touch this network anymore so I must admit that's the kind of the one thing that uh, probably without wishing to, to, to sound too, too too dramatic about it it's one of the main things that worries me about this uh, the, the current situation we're all in and I know that this episode is, is hor- going to be horribly dated in <laughs> you know six months or a year but the one thing that does kind of play in the back of my head is you know, I've I've set so much infrastructure up in this house that if I wasn't here for whatever reason for a prolonged period of time, then how much of that in network infrastructure is going to go belly up? How much is my wife and my wife and children going to have to rapidly learn how to you know administrate a Linux system or <laughs> you know understand what what Nextcloud is or what's that what's that <laughs> strange box that's got two disks in the front of it doing you know. I do panic a bit about that. It is making me start to think perhaps I should start, you know, writing up some documentation about my network. Yeah, my, my wife's already informed me she's just going to reset the um, Virgin router back to um, back to default <laughs> and just run that way and just ignore it all. So, you know. <laughs> I suppose that's the other word. Yeah. Right, so we come up to hour. Shall we uh, wrap it all up? Uh, yeah, so I'd, I'd like to thank Dave, as ever, who, who produces this show and makes it sound... Uh, uh, amazing every uh, every time it's released. He does indeed. He does a fantastic job. Yeah, and, and also we have got to mention our Patreons because they're awesome. And unlike usually, I've I've actually got the list of them here, or I did <laughs> have. <laughs> uh, so thank you very much to Andamo, uh, Andy, Dave, uh, our lovely producer, Maha, Mike, uh, someone called Stu. Stu Howard, uh, I don't know some. <laughs> yeah, I don't know who that is. Uh, and actually, there's another Stuart, unrelated, uh, obviously different surnames. So. 
uh, uh, yeah, so thanks, thanks to all of you. You're awesome, uh, and you, you keep us on on the airwaves. I just suddenly thought it's it's, it's all still very much geared up for uh, for it just being the three of us here. There's <laughs> there's nothing here for for Stu to talk about. Well, so on top of uh, our amazing collection of Patreons, um, we also have a, a a wonderful Telegram group, which. Uh, we would in- strongly encourage anyone that listens to the podcast uh, to head over to the Telegram group. We uh, we have a link to that both in the show notes, uh, which if you're listening to this podcast uh, via your uh, mobile device, uh, you'll probably find in your show notes button on that on that application. But if you want to go and have a look on our website, uh, it's on the, under the contact us link there, uh, where you'll find the link to our Telegram group where you can come and join us and chat with uh, some sort of, I think it's 60 odd people we're up to now in the group. Uh, but if you didn't, if you wanted to just drop us a line directly, uh, you would email mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk. Yep. So they've got 62 members in there now, which is quite a good little chatty Goodness. group. Yeah. If you want to ask us a question, you can uh, obviously message on the Telegram group or email mail at adminadminpodcast.co.uk. So for further ado, I'd like to say thank you for listening and we'll see you all next time. Bye for now. See you now. See you later. Bye bye. Now it's over I can open any door Now it's over